Hello everyone and welcome back to the Matillion Meets podcast. Once again, I'm super excited to announce our next guest. We are joined by Meng Muk, who is our Senior Director of our Engineering Organisation. Welcome Meng to the Matillion Meets podcast. Thank you. Thanks for the introduction, Mira. It's been a pleasure for me to be able to make it today and um, really happy to be here. Great. There's some really exciting things we we're going to talk about. Obviously, you've been leading the engineering org in developing the data productivity clouds. So there's lots to talk about there. Um, but another thing I want to talk about is the fact that you're one of our very first female engineering leaders within Matillion. Um, so that's a great honor and a great responsibility as well. Um, but I can't imagine what it would be like to walk in to a company and know that you're the only or one of the only female leaders in that team. What was that like for you coming into Matillion last year? Um, having been in this position before, it is not exactly, you know, uh, an unfamiliar ground for me. Mm-hmm. It, it's something that I've been through in the past where I've walked in and, you know, it's essentially there are a lot of men in the room and very few women who are actually in the engineering team. Uh, so this is actually something that I've been through before in the past, but coming from Expedia, where there's a little bit more balance in terms of uh, from the diversity angle uh, from all accounts, it was definitely another sort of like, okay, you know, um, think about the company, where they come from and think about, you know, the sort of like culture and the makeup of the company and how do I sort of bring, you know, myself onto the table as well to basically, you um, give some insights of uh, different ways of working in terms mm-hmm. of where I can contribute, but also understanding the heart of the company and where they came from as well. So it's a bit of a two-way understanding sort of thing in terms of how do we sort of, you know, move the company forward, but at the same time, not lose the heart that it is. No, I love that. That's a great take. So did you think that you kind of fit into the puzzle quite nicely then when you first joined us? Mm, I would say not so much as fit because I prefer to use the word add. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's a, a shift in terms of uh, us moving from the word uh, culture fit in, yeah. in terms of cultural add. And, you know, everybody brings something of themselves to the table, not necessarily someone who, you know, is exactly like people who are already there. But you're bringing new ideas, you're bringing a bit of yourself, you're bringing, you know, something different. Yeah. And hopefully all that adds up in terms of us being able to create a product that's really innovative, that is really out there and that really challenges the market. And that's what we want is for people to bring in their experiences to the table. No, I love that. That's a great way of looking at it. And um, I also can't imagine, so I don't know about you, but when I was at school, being a woman in STEM or the kind of computer science aspect of things or the sciences weren't really like drilled into me when I was younger. So did you always know that you wanted to be an engineer or was that something you kind of learned away, learned while you were at school? Like, how did that come about? I think being the youngest uh, daughter in the family, yeah. I was a little bit of a rebel in that <laughs> sense. Ironically, my parents actually thought that I would do better as an accountant than uh, in engineering. But yeah, there was a bit of a strange sort of like um, irony because I actually suspected my dad actually wanted boys. He wanted sons. <laughs> and instead he had me and my sister, two girls. But that didn't stop him from actually getting, you know, computers. He was very into science fiction. So mm-hmm. he was very much, you know, into technology in that sense. And he was very encouraging in terms of, you know, getting his books uh, about science, about, you know, nature and things like that, getting us um, um, into museums and, you know, 
the exposure really more more so than anything else. And so I was very young when my dad actually came back with uh, an Apple computer, which was for my very first computer. <laughs> and I remember doing the uh, Apple programming for kids where you had to basically, you know, you know ask a person, what sort of pizza do you want? What sort of topping do you want? And then in the end, you sort of go like, oh, this is the pizza you wanted, you ordered. <laughs> you know? And that would be, this is how much it would cost, you know, because every topping costs a certain amount. So in an ironic way, um, because I think my dad was, he wasn't inhibited with the perception of what me and my sister should be exposed to. Yeah. So that kind of helped in terms of giving me that sort of backing and that sort of exposure of uh, computers. Uh, my sister was the one that actually, you know, went on to finance. <laughs> I'm the one that actually went on to, to science. Uh, but it was like little things where my favorite subject was maths. You know, yeah. it I was always doing a lot of logic puzzles, jigsaw puzzles, chess, you know. So it was definitely geared towards these sort of like engineering challenges and from the get-go. So your career kind of started off with being a coder and then obviously now you are in a formal leadership role. What was that jump like for you? So that was kind of interesting because I actually would have been a leadership role a lot earlier in my career if I really wanted to, if I really pushed for it. But I enjoyed coding far too much for uh, quite a period of time. So I was in this job where I was doing, uh, producing software for the radio industry with the likes of BBC and Bao Media. And I was, I had a lot of really interesting problems to solve, like, you know, trying to create um, search indexes for customers so that they can then drive their search results a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, and also trying to build trending algorithms in terms of what radio show could be trending right now, building API calls where um, they, the APIs would go down when one direction comes onto the radio, <laughs> things like that. Um, and, and so it was, there was a lot of learning. There was a lot of uh, good exposure from that role. It was very limited in one sense because uh, we didn't have a lot of money to do to deal with scale, to deal mm-hmm. with a lot of the challenges that I eventually learned to deal with in Expedia. But it was a good learning ground, and I really enjoyed it. And I I was like, you know, I should make most of the make the most of the time there in terms of. Um, taking the time to sort of learn good engineering practices, get the exposure I want. But eventually, towards the end of that role, which was almost nine years in, I got to the point where I was feeling like, you know, I, I'm probably getting into that position where I'm more effective as a people leader yeah. than um, as an engineer. And that I was starting to really enjoy watching others grow and, and watching others actually nail it in terms of like delivery and, and you know, getting the wins rather than me as an individual. And that's when it sort of like clicked to me that, you know, I want to build teams. Mm-hmm. I want to build my team and, yeah. and, and I enjoy building my team. Uh, in that role because I had the handle of like interviewing and getting pe- my my peers in and then eventually uh, right towards the end I was leading them for the, for the final year so that's when I the, the realization sort of kicked in. I love that and I can imagine it's quite daunting for anyone to go into a leadership role um, but probably more so women because I think it is we more often than not find men in leadership positions um, and the narrative we often hear is about how there's often a kind of a power struggle between men and women um, and finding their ground with, within like a leadership role. How did you navigate that kind of earlier on when you first became a leader versus now when you're a senior director? 
how has that kind of changed throughout your career? What was interesting was that um, in when I was working in Asia, it was very much of an even split in terms of women in engineering. Okay. Because uh, in Asia, that was where all the jobs were. And so naturally, a lot of people were taking up computer science degrees. And so they were going into uh, compu- uh, computing and programming in general. So when I was working there, it was like a, a more even split of like, not quite 50-50, but maybe 40-60s. And yeah. there were women in leadership roles there that I, I learned a lot from. But coming to the UK, it was pretty much the opposite end of the spectrum, which was a bit of a surprise for me in, in some sense. But that first job that I had in the UK, um, there was another women engineer on the ground. And there was a bit of a friction going on between the two of us because I was a newbie. <laughs> I was a new person in the, in the picture, but you know, I was also very hungry for basically, you know, learning and 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 for basically trying to solve challenges and things like that. And she definitely felt that sort of uh, competition yeah. in, in a way. So there's a bit of that female competitiveness going on there. Um, but the the thing is, is that you know what I've learned from that experience going forward is that because there's so few women in this area, we need to be allies for each other. Yeah. And so it's important to sort of build that relationship because we have the same understanding in terms of, you know, challenges, backgrounds, similar sort of such scenarios that we've all gone, gone through in terms of, you know, thinking, am I being too aggressive if I say this, you know, in this meeting, or am I being too meek Am I not being assertive enough? You know, that sort of thing about finding your balance and mm-hmm. trying to find what's the right behavior to exhibit in some of these leadership sessions sometimes. Because for men, on the other hand, you know, there's that sort of like stereotype towards, um, you know, the macho-ness in terms yeah. of, you know, the bravado and the confidence sort of feel that you get from someone who makes a big statement and puts it out there. And when a woman does it, some sometimes you get that reaction where some people go like, oh, she's being quite aggressive or, you know, she's being bold, but not necessarily in, in a positive way yeah. <laughs> as well. So, you know, it becomes a challenge of basically um, staying true to yourself and making sure that you're basically staying true to your values of what you want to exhibit uh, in terms of you know, ignoring the types, ignoring everything else. You, essentially, everyone has, you know, good intent in terms of what they want to uh, push in terms of ideas or, you know, uh, opinions and things like that. Mm-hmm. But it's always a difficult one in terms of, you know, you need to get your voice, you know, at the table because if you don't have your voice out there, you'll never get a seat at the table. And I yeah. think that's the, the challenge for a lot of women in leadership is trying to figure out, like, how do you get that voice out there? Yeah, it's interesting to say that as well, because I think even though I'm a woman, if I get a message from a woman which has like, without exclamation points, or without a smiley face, sometimes I think, oh, they're being a bit harsh. And I'm like, I would never think that if a man sent that to me. So it's kind of like acknowledging that difference and um, not feeling ashamed to kind of basically treat other people, speak to other people the same way men in leadership would do to us. I think we kind of have that kind of guilt of saying that you have to be extra nice and be extra polite, but that wouldn't be the same on on the other shoe. It's interesting that you say that because um, I would say this about, you know, when you read a a message on Slack, for example, or or a text message, um, people tend to put a voice 
to you know the the sentence, and actually the voice you put to that sentence might not be the same as how the person intended it to be said. Exactly. So you know, it's exactly as you say, right? If you don't put the smiley face, and then then people go like, oh wow, okay, she's probably being a bit full on, or you know, <laughs> something like that. Or you know, he, same with like a, a a man as well in terms of the sort of stereotypes that we we tend to portray with you know a man's voice. Exactly. And and the reality is that you know it could be something entirely different. Yeah. So I guess that kind of goes nicely onto my next question, which is what your opinion is of the biggest challenges and assumptions women in leadership face today. So I think a lot of it comes back to um, the cycles of a, a women's career, right? In terms of you know, if you choose to have children, then you have to take time off. You know, to basically. Uh, accommodate the pregnancy. You may take different life choices beyond that, or you may still want your career to carry on. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the sort of like perception about the um, availability of a woman, and you know, at a certain point of time in her life, in terms of whether is she still committed in her career, um, or, or maybe it's the husband that needs to be the one that you know becomes the breadwinner. And I think. It was kind of interesting because a couple of years ago, I had an engineer come to me. Um, Matt was his name, and his partner had had a baby, and and she had taken a year's maternity leave off. But a year later, Matt came to me and said, like, "Oh, um, you know, I want to go down to a four day week if that's possible because I want to support my partner." Going back to the workplace, and I thought it was kind of interesting because I've never been approached with this sort of question before. But at the same time, I was also thinking, okay, you know,、um, that's fantastic because here is a man who is willingly supporting his partner to go return back to the workplace, which is, I think, really amazing and and something that we don't we're starting to see more of actually、yeah. of late. Um, and so that's been really good. It's, it's not assuming that you know the woman doesn't care about her career beyond a certain point. It's not true. Some women do still care about the career. They still want to see that continuity. They still want to to have that ambition and success. And so I think that's one of the challenges and assumptions that we're still sort of working our way through in terms of、um, the society as it stands. Yeah, no, definitely. I think it's obvious that we've come a long way, but there's still so so much further to go.、Um, and I guess that's some part of what makes a great leader is being understanding about those situations and supporting、um, your direct reports through those situations. What, in your opinion, is the one thing that not the one thing, but the biggest thing that makes a great leader? I think it's having the humility to、um, acknowledge that we are always learning. Yeah. There's always room for growth. There's always room for feedback, no matter what level you are. And I think as a leader, you sort of recognize that you know、um, you're not the person who knows all、uh, necessarily. Sometimes your team knows more than you, and and you get to a point where actually technically your team probably does know more than <laughs> you as well, and you have to use a, a, a you know whatever information they give you to sort of figure out like does this make sense to me? Okay, does this just actually come together in that way? But、um, it is actually you know just acknowledging that you're always learning,、mm-hmm. and and just having the appetite for、um, just. Continuously building up your knowledge and 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 learning something new every day and and trying to basically you know、um, 
understand if there are certain behaviors about yourself that you might want to improve or fix or change, you know, anything like that. And and I think it's, that's what a good leader should be is someone who doesn't say, you know, satisfied with who they are as they stand as a status quo. Yeah. They they know that the world keeps moving and, and you learn new information and you keep adapting. And part of the challenge of, you know, a lot of us in the leadership space is that you constantly have to help your team deal with changes as well and being agile towards change. Because uh, the reality is that, you know, we've had things like the pandemic happen. We had the the situation with the recent war happen as well. And, you know, that's had massive impacts in terms of the economy and everything else. So, you know, you learn new information and then, then you have to basically adapt. And part of our sort of work as, as a leader is also helping our team to understand why we're doing something for what reason, what's the value it brings and things like that. And so it's getting that message out there to them. So obviously we've spoken a lot about your experience as a female leader and obviously it's a well-known thing that diversity is super important um, within everything in life, but especially here at work. How are you approaching increasing the diversity within our engineering org? So diversity is a challenge definitely for Matilin because we acknowledge where we are today in terms of our diversity numbers, but we also have a target in terms of how we want to improve and move the needle towards that. And if you look at um, how we've hired in, for example, placement students in previous years, the last cohort that we had, all the engineering placement students were all men. And we acknowledge that you know, something's got to change here because obviously something is off in terms of how did we land uh, with basically all the placement, engineering placement students being men? How can we sort of change uh, that process in terms of making it more inclusive for women, but also how do we source sort of women candidates uh, who are working within the STEM fields and giving them that opportunity within our engineering team? And, um, Leanne, who heads up our early careers uh, side of things, has done a great job with sourcing. She worked very hard in terms of understanding, you know, what did we not do in the previous year? What, what could we change about how we do things in terms of getting more diverse candidates through the system? Because the one thing we also do not want to do is lower the bar either in terms of, you know, basically not bringing in the best candidates into the picture. We always want to have the best person for the job that we have, but we want to improve, you know, the sort of like sourcing so that we can then enlarge that pool further. And I'm really delighted that for the next year's cohort, we've managed to achieve 50% of the um, split in terms of men and women or placement students. And I think that's really amazing because we put in the legwork there in terms of improving how we interview, improving how we're assessing early career students, and improving how we make ourselves more inclusive and more appealing to um, a more diverse set of candidates. And, you know, that's also just beyond um, just men and women as well, because when you look at interview processes, they are definitely more partial towards people who are extroverts, who actually present themselves well, who communicate well. And it's harder for the person who is, you know, a bit shy, more introverted, probably, you know, um, gets nervous very easily. And, and 
I think a lot of it comes down to us sort of acknowledging that that doesn't mean that they're not going to be great at the job. Mm-hmm. You know, they they might be more reserved, but you know, it, they have different qualities in terms of how they think, how they solve problems, and that isn't exactly clear from typical interview processes. So we want to sort of like look at our interview processes and also sort of ask ourselves in terms of like how do we get those sort of signals in terms of. You know, this person's not just a good talker, but actually, this person actually knows how to solve engineering problems. Has the right sort of mindset and approach towards uh, these sort of challenges, and that's what we want to sort of. Um, we've been working hard at in terms of changing uh, our hiring approach in terms of how we do assessments. And of course, the R and D teams have been instrumental in making this development happen. Talk about what it's like been like for, let's say, in your case, the engineering team building the data productivity cloud? It's been actually a really interesting challenge because we wanted to basically, you know, take a lot of the good parts of metal, but also not just take the experience as it stands within metal. We wanted to reimagine the experience and actually go, actually, you know, what would make a better user experience. And so there's been a lot of dialogue between the engineering and the product teams, uh, and that includes product design as well, being the heart of it in terms of the experience side, uh, in redefining what the the user journey should be within the data pre cloud, within the um, projects and the designer, and you know, with uh, the um, sort of like environment setup for the user so that we actually look at the whole user journey and going like, you know, is this contributing to uh, a phrase that our product team coined uh, 10 minutes to wow, essentially. And so, you know, how long does it take for a user to get set up? And so from the engineering perspective, we've been challenged from the perspective of like not actually um, being biased towards how we solve problems before in metal, but actually looking at how we solve the problems in metal and then just going, is there a better way? Mm-hmm. And and I think this has been the thing that has pushed us all the way through from engineering in terms of, you know, the standards, in terms of basically um, defining our path forward uh, and actually looking at things not just from like a tactical decision perspective, but also from like a more strategic point of view. Yeah. Like right now we are targeting, you know, the sort of like the low code users. Uh, how do we then, you know, move towards enabling high code users who's the other end of the spectrum that we want to look towards. Uh, and so, you know, one of my engineers uh, is working on basically what we call the domain specific language, where we're trying to redefine the model of defining our, our pipelines uh, and how they are basically being uh, scripted out so that it makes it easier for customers who might not want to use the designer, but want to interact with the sort of code directly um, and, and build their pipelines directly in the sort of like code format. And so there's a lot of things like where, like this where we're looking at opportunities, not just from a short-term perspective, but we're also looking at a much longer term. And for our engineering teams, it's been quite exciting because I don't think they've had you know that much opportunity to have this much input before yeah. into the product. And so it's been very good for them to have that sort of exposure, to have that dialogue with product in terms of what would, you know, this, what would the next material look like? Yeah. So it's clear that you've built a great team. Um, 
But now that we've got that team, you kind of need to keep them at the top of their game. How do you and the rest of the team keep on top of emerging technologies and um, trends? How do you guys keep that development going? It's always a challenge within an engineering team because people are always very attracted to the, you know, the next shiny thing, essentially. <laughs> and it's not so easy. It's not so straightforward in terms of like, oh, here, look at this new shiny thing here. That could be an interesting thing for us to use and adopt from a technology standpoint. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of thought process that has to be put into it in terms of like, okay, if we bring this thing in, what's the investment we have to put into it? What is the value we're getting out of it? Do the does the value sort of outweighs the investment we're putting in? What's the cost of maintaining it? And so there's a lot of decision-making that needs to be put in place, uh, but it doesn't mean that we should stop looking at new technology either. We should always have an eye on what the industry trends are. And so there are things that, Actually, you know, um, we try to bring attention to the engineering team too on uh, a couple of like uh, regular white papers that get uh, published, like the ThoughtWorks Tech Radar. Mm -hmm. And um, interestingly enough, there was something that was released in the ThoughtWorks Tech Radar last year that we've actually brought into the Data Productivity Cloud recently um, in terms of one of the frameworks. And, you know, it, but we didn't, I've, we didn't just bring it in, you know, straight away when we first saw it. We just saw it, thought about it, and thought, okay, this is interesting. Un until we find a case for it, maybe we just park it for now. And actually, we found a really good use case for bringing in this framework in terms of managing um, state within the designer in terms of doing the undo-redo features that you yeah. normally do with, like, you know, these sort of, like, uh, applications. And so... There's always room for innovation. There's always room for technology. Um, and it's so important for us to keep an eye out on in terms of what's out there. And that's true either articles, either through, you know, um, I, I always get um, books for my team as well in terms of the, the library, building up the library of books. Yeah. Um, articles as well and and basically going like hey here's an interesting article we might want to read about this and actually understand if there's something here that we want to take you know um, make some use out of but the next big thing for Matillion is the data productivity cloud um obviously it's all we've been hearing about we're talking about a lot but why is it that we're building the data productivity cloud what is that really going to offer our customers so one of the things that we tend to struggle with our existing product as it stands is basically selling to um, people who just want to get to the core aspects of a product straight away mm -hmm. uh, in terms of designing the data pipelines, in terms of loading in data. And we've got certain uh, fragments of products with data loading, with you know CDC, with uh, our sort of connectors side of things. and. But the, the, what we're, where we don't have right now is how all these pieces connect together in terms of making a cohesive sort of product and ecosystem and how they can sort of play with each other. And, and what we're getting to with Data Product Cloud is starting you know, to sort of bring all these pieces, all these fragments together so that we then look at the product on a whole and going like, actually okay you know um the customers could maybe they they want to use this aspect of the product and then join it up with this aspect of the product you know how do we enable them to do that and and data product cloud is you know 
driving us towards that vision of allowing customers to plug in the pieces that they want out of Matillion and putting together onto you know one single place in terms of defining their pipelines. And doing that with very little friction, with very little um, upfront work that they would need to do in terms of setup, in terms of installations or anything like that. So going towards that um, sort of idea of, well, don't worry about setting up environments. We solve that problem for you. Mm -hmm. Here, you can just get started straight away, you know, as long as you want to use one of our Matillion hosted uh, agents uh, instead. And, and this is how you can get started straight away with building your data pipelines. You don't have to worry about setting up anything on your side. And so we want to take away a lot of the, the headaches and the, the overheads of maintenance in that sense. Yeah, so we're help, basically helping data teams to get the most out of their data in a short space of time. Exactly. So we're removing um, the need for them to have additional resources to maintain certain uh, infrastructure or environments or anything like that. Uh, we're basically, you know, removing the need for them to actually put in time as well mm -hmm. to enable that. Uh, because then the data teams can just get in there and then do the, what they need, they want to, and get their problem solved straight away. Because you know, it's kind of like a bit like a, a chat GPT sort of yeah. like way world, isn't it? In terms of, I just want to put my data in there and then get this answer out there. That's all I want. Yeah. And it's obviously super exciting. It's getting everyone in business talking. Um, and we actually have some questions from other Matillioners in the business for you. Um, so the first question is from Ben Milner. Uh, and his question is, are there any plans for migration capability for existing Metal customer to easily move to the data productivity cloud? Absolutely. So one of the things that we are doing as part of the work with um, redefining the, the domain-specific language or DSL as we call it, or the Matillion uh, data pipeline language, uh, <laughs> essentially, um, uh, is basically enabling conversion of the existing Metal formats to our new um, pipeline formats. And so by having that converter in place, we're hoping that we'll be able to get to the point where actually we can use these converters to enable customer migrations. Uh, obviously, there will be some nuance cases where we'll need to actually understand and see, you know, okay, do the pipeline still work when we do a migration? How do we manage that sort of process? How do we make sure that um, customers are supported through the migrations as well? We definitely have that on the cards. We definitely do want to do that. And we definitely do want uh, the Metal customers moving on to the new world in terms of uh, the data property cloud. Hopefully that answers your question, Ben. And this next question is from Kalyan. And he asks, what will MDL users experience be when the data productivity cloud is released? Will they see DPC UI or continue to see existing MDL 2.0 UI? They will continue to see the existing MDL 2.0 UI for the time being. So that's going to be the next stage of how we bring MDL into fully into the data productivity cloud. Because technically, we do term data loading as part of the data productivity cloud. But again, it's one of those fragments that's sitting on the side right now. But we need to figure out, you know, how do we bring it in fully into enabling someone to go like, here's my data loading pipeline 
can I take the output of that data load and then you know plug it into the rest of my transformation and job and uh, transformation pipeline or similar? And so it's not there yet in terms <laughs> of us actually thinking about the whole end-to-end experience, but it's definitely on the table in terms of what we want to change from a user experience perspective. But from day one, no change whatsoever to MDL. Okay, thank you. Um, so those are all the questions from other Matillioners. I know there was a few other questions as well. Um, we might be able to get those questions up on Slack at some point for you. But my next question is actually, what do you see as the biggest opportunity for Matillion in the next few years? What I'm excited to see is how we can pivot um, beyond just you know what we have today in Data Pretty Cloud, which is the designer, where it's pretty much a very low code experience. There's a lot of the foundational pieces that we put in place in the platform where it's enabling customers to basically uh, do direct API calls. It's enabling customers to do direct, um, you know, managing their pipelines as code, essentially. So a bit more like the infrastructure as code sort of like uh, aspects. Um, where they don't really want to use a canvas. They actually just want to interact directly with the code repositories and then get their pipelines in there. So I can see us actually really growing our business out so that we target beyond just the uh, low-code mar market, but also branching off to then include that high-code spectrum, which... I can definitely see the opportunities for from uh, people who want to, who have teams that are actually engineering teams that are actually very savvy in terms of being able to make API calls that can actually build things that they want to automate on their side uh, to manage the whole data ops initiatives on, on their end. Great. That's a great insight. Um, and as much as I've loved hearing you talk about the Data Productivity Cloud, I also want to get into some of the fun questions. And as you might have seen on our last few episodes, we've been doing a snack battle between US and UK snacks. So if you are watching, um, you would have magically seen a couple of bowls appear with some very brightly colored snacks inside. Um, since the last few episodes we did something sweet, I thought we'd change it up and do some savory snacks this time. Um, from the US, we've got I don't know if I'm saying that right, but Takis, I think. Okay. Which I think are meant to be like sour, spicy crisps. And then from the UK, we have knickknacks. I think they're the hot and spicy ones. I tried to get two, which I thought would be a little bit similar so you can make a good comparison. So go feel free to try each one and let us know your verdict. Okay. I'm going to reach for the far bowl and... So this mm. is this is the Takis, the American crisp. It's very tomatoey. Oh okay. wait, the the spice is kicking in. <laughs> okay. Do you like this, that or not bad actually? Okay. Um, the heat does come after. <laughs> <laughs> is it unbearable heat or is it? No, okay. it's bearable for me. Okay. But other people might find it a little bit too too hot for them. What would you rate that one out of ten? It's actually not bad. I would say it's a uh, eight out of ten. That's a solid that score. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's it's pretty good actually. <laughs> I'm quite surprised um, compared to like the, the very bright, <laughs> artificially color. <laughs> okay, so try the knickknacks now. Yeah, hot and spicy knickknack. It's not as spicy, but I think the mm -hmm. balance is better for this one. Okay. 
having had this now, um, what would you rate the, the knickknacks? Not, that's a 9 out of 10. I'm now thinking of downgrading that to 7 now because the... See, I thought that was going to be a clear winner with the Takis because that's probably our highest score we've had for an American snack so far. Yeah, it's pretty good though. It is pretty pretty decent, but I think the balance on this one's better. But also, there's, I'm quite partial to prong cocktails. <laughs> so this has the bit of that prong cocktail knack to it, but it's not actually spicy compared to the other one. So if you're looking for something spicier, then the Takis is better. I love that. I think that's the most detailed food review we've had on this so far. So <laughs> um, thank you, Meng. So another point for the UK team. Well done. Well, I hope you enjoyed that snack, Meng. Um, but I wanted to ask you a question, which you might have heard on both of our last episodes. Um, because my idea is after we've finished this whole series, we can put together all the songs or artists in one playlist and we can have a nice Matillion Meets Spotify playlist for everyone to listen to. Um, so my question to you is... If you were going to host your own music festival, who would your top three headliners be? That's a really tough question for me because my music genre taste is so eclectic. It is so (laughs) widespread. Like I can do classical, jazz, everything. Um, Cape, uh, Korean hip hop recently is my thing or K-pop rather. Oh yeah. (laughs) So it is very widespread. But uh, does does it have to include people who? Are still alive essentially i'd say dead or alive dead or alive yeah. uh, bowie okay <laughs> but bowie is definitely in there in terms of the top three list um uh, oh but actually here's one that might actually play quite well to um uh some of the fans of uh what we call shoegazing, genre. shoegazing. yeah my bloody valentine oh, okay i don't think i've ever listened to them but i've heard of them they, uh, yeah, it is pretty good music, but you have to listen through the distortion and all sounds <laughs> and things like that. So My Bloody Valentine, Bowie, who's the third one that I would put in there? Oh, I'm going to go a little bit more grungy with PJ Harvey. Okay. I have no clue who that is. But <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I can give him, is it him? A listen? Uh, oh, no, a her. Yeah. Oh, a, ba- a girl. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. PJ Harvey's pretty, pretty <laughs> darn good. Um, yeah, she's done some stunning stuff. And my next question is, what is your ultimate bucket list item? Oh, that is a challenging one because the one thing I do love is um, travel and nature. And, you know, um, I would love to go see the gorillas. Okay. The band or? No, (laughs) not the band. I'm actually a pretty decent band as well. But I, I would love to have had the opportunity to go into the jungle to go see the gorillas um and and you know there's something quite fascinating about uh them as a, as a primate because uh coming from malaysia i have been to borneo and i have seen yeah. the orangutans and um, i've just seen the one orangutan by the way <laughs> in the course of a few days and it was quite stunning seeing nature in front of you raw as it is in terms of like you know it's not caged animals is not in a sanctuary or anything like that is actually out there in the wild yeah. and it was this one female orangutan that was building a nest uh she crossed the road in front of me one time and i was just like stunned yeah. <laughs> and just stood there watching it cross the road and trying to like do the respectful distance thing i saw her basically pulling fruit from the trees the next morning and you know even though it's just the one that i saw because they are solitary creatures it yeah. was still a stunning experience and and gorillas is definitely on my bucket list yeah, I mean, I get amazed when I see a cow in a field, so I can imagine seeing <laughs> Tina Rangatang in the world is quite impressive. Um, thank you. And lastly, before I let you go, 
if you could meet any anyone dead or alive to meet with for 30 minutes since you're on the Matilda Meets podcast who would that be and why mm. if I could meet anyone dead or alive oh this is another hard one I think this is a hard one because do I want to pick an a writer in, in a way um I'm actually quite uh, fascinated with how you know um, some of these authors come up with like concepts so early in their, their careers. Uh, mm-hmm. Mary Shelley would be a fascinating one <laughs> because, okay. as someone who's married to like a romantic poet, you know, <laughs> you wouldn't think of of her as being able to come up with a story like Frankenstein. And there's something quite sci-fi and very ahead of its time for it. And I would like to basically, you know figure out how, where did she come up with these ideas from because and, and from you know where did she get the inspiration from with whatever limited environment that she had <laughs> you know at the time or limited technology that we had at, in yeah. those days um so that for me is, is tremendously fascinating you know it's always like looking at how did we get to the point where man created te- you know textiles fabric you know how did they know to turn cotton into fabric you know that's the sort of stuff that fascinates me in terms of how the people come up with ideas like that yeah you're very inquisitive aren't you yeah. <laughs> i think it's a helps with the engineering background yeah. in a sense. <laughs> thanks Meng. um it's been great speaking with you today obviously talking about your experiences being a female leader and also leading the team in developing the data productivity cloud um but thank you for being our next guest on matillion meets podcast please join us next time to see who matillion will be meeting next Thank you so much for your time, Eurus. Really appreciate the conversation. It's been really lovely. Thank you.